Welcome to the College Sports Insider presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. Here are some statistics that might surprise you. Back in 1972, 90% of women's sports teams were coached by women. By 1981, that number had been reduced to 55%. And most recently, in 2017, that number had been reduced to less than half. So, at a time when there are more women college athletes than ever before, why are there so few women coaches? Well, Rachel Stark, who is the assistant editor of Champion Magazine, looked into this question in a recent article titled, Where Are the Women? in the winter issue of 2017. And she joins us now to talk about it. Rachel, nice to have you here with us. Thanks for having me. So I started off saying those numbers really surprised me. When you started to look into this, were you surprised by those numbers? I was really surprised. So. As part of my role here at the NCAA, um, I I cover some different membership committees. So I was sitting in on a committee on women's athletics meeting, um, and then also this topic came up in a gender equity task force meeting. So, um, you know, two groups within the NCAA membership that uh, focus on um, gender equity issues very heavily. And I remember learning about some of these stats there. Uh, it was probably probably about a year before I started working on on this story, and they they really jumped out at me. I remember being shocked and thinking, "Oh, it's 2017 or 2016 at the time. I'm not sure exactly when, but you know, how how is this possible at a time as you mentioned, more than more female student athletes than ever are are participating in sports? So I, I did kind of I, I talked to some people and about it and. Um, kind of gauge their interest, and everybody I spoke with was surprised by, by these stats. So that's kind of when I knew that, that this was a story, and it was a, a story that was worth looking into. I want to start off with how you start the story off, right? You start off with a, a young girl, seven-year-old girl at the time. Carol Hutchins is her name. Uh, some folks might, I'm sort of giving away, <laughs> but some folks might, if they're college sports fans, especially if they're fans of University of Michigan, especially if they're fans of Michigan softball, will recognize her as Michigan head coach and the winningest softball coach in NCAA history. So you start off with her to sort of set the stage for this. Tell me a little bit about, about those first couple of lines of, of what you're, the picture you're portraying of Carol Hutchins as a young girl and how that fed into your story. Yeah. Carol Hutchins, that, that's probably one of my favorite interviews of all time. I've done a lot of interviews, and she, um, she she's just a, an amazing woman to, to speak with and has a lot of really great stories to share, um, one of them being when she, you know, she took me back to her as a, as a young, young girl and watching TV, watching um, wrestling, something that they, they, they watched all the time in her household, and uh, she, she saw... A female wrestler for the first time on TV, and she just couldn't believe it. So, um, her, hearing her tell that story and kind of the um, impact that had on her as a girl, she went to her mom and she said, "Mom, I, I figured out what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be a female wrestler. Or I want to be a wrestler." You, can I you think. imagine her mother's reaction <laughs> right, to that? You know, right. I have this lovely child who's talented, and she's telling me she wants to be a wrestler. Right. <laughs> So, so where does she go from there? How does, again, how this, this story evolves for her? 
So then she eventually dropped that dream, realized that that wasn't probably very realistic for her. But uh, in high school, you know, she had this this love that continued for, for sports and for competition. And so in high school, she got involved with several different sports. And that's when she had her first, um, you know, most of the coaches up to that point were, were men. And she, and she had um, two very impactful women who um, became her coaches in high school. And so that kind of um, had the same sort of impact on her that the watching the, the female wrestler on TV had several years ago. Um, she, she just suddenly realized, oh, this could be me. She saw herself in these women. And, um, you know, that opened the door for this very successful career for her. It's interesting where she says, all of a sudden there are people who looked like me and sounded like me and had the same sort of interests that I had. Mm -hmm. And I said, they're doing something that I would like to do. And she talks about, I, you know, I had now a, a role model who was a woman coach. Mm-hmm. Let's, let, to, to set the stage for this a little bit, you know, we talk about 1972. And 1972 is a significant moment in the world of, of women's athletics because it was when Title IX came into play. Just r- really quickly, so people know what we're talking about here. When we talk about Title, title IX and the changes that, that came as consequence of that, what are we talking about? So, yeah, but before Title IX, um, as you already mentioned, more than ninety percent of women's teams were, were coached by women. So these a lot. These were a lot of times volunteer coaches. Um, the the teams uh, there weren't a lot of resources flooding into these these women's teams. They were cramming into cars um, for games. Sometimes sleeping on the floor of the gymnasium they were going to play on the next day. Um, women still a lot of times played half court basketball. So then Title IX was passed in nineteen seventy two and. Um, kind of opened the floodgates for um, female uh, athletics participation. So uh, a lot of a lot more teams were created for women around uh, around uh, colleges across the country. And um, with that, there were some changes within the way that colleges um, kind of structured their athletic department. So a lot of times there were the there was a previously a men's athletics department and a, a women's athletics department and, and a lot of times they merged together then to, to form one department um, and kind of with that transition then um, a lot of the times the the athletics director be, was was a man so right now I think the number is around 20 percent of athletics directors in the NCAA are women so that's something also that kind of plays into this factor as well. It's funny you talk about the the change just as as a personal observation. I'm playing football at Yale in the early 70s. In 1969 was the first group of women admitted to Yale as transfer students. 1970 was the first group of freshmen women coming in. And they were looking to start teams and had no facilities. I mean, literally, as you said, no place to change. You know, change in, in, in literally in, in, in closets somewhere out in the field house. So somebody mm-hmm. would give them some space, but they'd have to be out within a certain period of time mm-hmm. so that the men could use it. So, you know, I, I was there as that started to evolve. And I've talked to people I know who were athletes who were literally starting teams at Yale. And it's interesting when they look back at it now and they see, you know, the facilities that, that we have at Yale for the female athletes. My daughter was a lacrosse player at Yale. Uh-huh. And I look at that and I talk to my friends who who've said, yeah, you know, we, we didn't, again, changing in our cars on the way to, to practice. It's, exactly. It's kind of what it was right. back then. So, the... Yeah, so then after Title IX, it wasn't immediately that um, these floodgates opened, but, it was, you know, so, several years um, started seeing quite a lot of progress in terms of what was available for, for women in, in sports. Um, I, I would also add that 
with those increased um, resources, um, you know, the job, the coaching job became well, more lucrative. That's, I want to ask you about and that. prestigious. Yeah. So, Let me ask you about that because uh-huh. I, that, that was almost something that sounded counterintuitive until you gave it some thought. And you've, you've identified, isolated and identified and talked about a number of these factors that seem to be contributing to this diminution of women as coaches. Mm-hmm. And I, first one, I want to ask you about this because you would think, all right, now Title IX, the institutions are, are putting money in and creating teams um, with, with the growth of college sports and television and general interest on the public. You're getting more and more positions. Uh, there's more money now in these positions. As you mentioned, so much of this was volunteer or ridiculously low pay before this. So you would think, Okay, we got more jobs, and they're going to pay more money. I guess we'll get more women coming into mm-hmm. the profession. Yep. But that didn't work out that way. Mm-hmm. Tell me why. So the coaching positions became more uh, competitive. There's a lot more people vying for these jobs, and um, you know, men started crossing over and, and having a lot more interest in some of these positions. Rightfully so. That you know, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but that crossover didn't. Um, carry over on the women's side. So still today, I think this is an interesting point. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily answer your question, but um, you know, women weren't having those same opportunities for men's teams. So men had so, come coach women's teams, right. but nobody was giving women opportunities to coach men's teams. Exactly. I think the number right now is around four, just over 4% of men's teams are, are coached by women. Uh-huh. So, um, but yeah, so, so your questions are really, it's, it's a complicated one. Um, yeah. Can't say exactly why more women weren't going into it, but I think that um, we'll get to those yeah. factors here. Yeah, but, and, but you certainly got more men competing sure, for those spots. exactly. Here. Let's talk about some of the other factors that you talk about in there. Um, and one of them you talk about is, is the notion of increasing demands on coaches in, in this era. Mm-hmm. You know, time demands, the destruction of time balance. What did you find with regard to women in that scenario? Yeah, the, oh, the, the coaching world is just never, it's just around the clock. Um, you know, we all know that it's, it's an intense, um, very time-demanding kind of field. So to go into it, to start, you have to be really passionate about what you're doing. Um, and, you know, if, if you add in the factor of being a mother and a coach, that is um, just even more so challenging. You know, you think about um, for any working mom, but then you add in, you know, all of the round the clock recruiting duties. Um, you know, it's just not a nine to five kind of job. So, um, I, I think th- this kind of challenge is something that, of course, men deal with, too, just as much. So when we're talking about making the coaching profession more of a healthy profession all around, um, you know, this is something that what's good for women is good for men as well. Uh, men in the coaching profession will talk about that. But there are factors to their, their life that they don't have to deal with the same as women in the coaching profession. It's reality. Right. Women want to have families. They want to have children. I remember my, my daughter's lacrosse coach at Yale, and she had a child when my daughter was playing. And, you know, the team became the babysitters. <laughs> Essentially, right. she would bring the, the, her little daughter, who is now playing herself in college, um, bring her. And, you know, somebody would be keeping her busy while the coach was, was trying to coach. So, you know, there are different things that contribute to that. One of the other things you, you, you mentioned and this kind of goes back to what we, when we talk about um, Carol Hutchins, is that with this number diminishing, you have less and less mentors for women. What did you hear about that when you were talking to people? 
Right. So it kind of, yeah, it goes back to, you know, can you be what you can't see? Um, That's an interesting yeah. way of putting it. Right. You know, we so, want to be what we can see. We uh-huh. identify it. Yeah. A lot of times what I heard from, from the coaches I was interviewing, they didn't even think about going into coaching until they saw a woman who was a coach or until somebody encouraged them and kind of said, hey, have you have you thought about this? Um, so it's really interesting to me how common of a theme that was that a lot of times it just didn't dawn on them that this was a, a path that they could go down. Um, so I think the, the, the lack of mentors really plays into that and just kind of opening young people's eyes like you could be really good at this. You have the skills. You love your sport. Um, and there's this huge pipeline of females who are student athletes. Why aren't more of them going into this? this field, um, you know, where they could have a lot of success. And as a, a, a uh, an addition to that, if you would, or a corollary to that is if you don't have as many mentors, probably impacts your networking opportunities, too. There are not as many women out there. I mean, if you go to, um, you know, any gathering, any gathering of, of either the NCA gatherings or, you know, recently I was at the, now at the COSIDA gathering and, and the, the NACTA group, and you could see people just in little groups, and mm-hmm. they're just talking, and they're networking, and they're creating relationships. And did you find that women feel they didn't have that quite that ability with, with regard to network? Oh, yeah, that came up a lot in conversations. And I, one woman that I spoke with, uh, actually, I liked how she put it. She said, we need to work on creating a, a, a good old girls club. You know, so just kind of really making this conscious effort to, to form connections and to network in the way that, that men do. So um, another woman that I spoke with, a volleyball coach, said, you know, a lot of, you know, she admitted that a lot of times when she, um, you know, tries to network with her female peers, sometimes there's just a different um, kind of nature to those conversations than when she's networking with some of her male peers. And so she really encourages other females to really be open about sharing, um, you know, what they found to work with with their teams. What are they doing um, specifically? What kinds of things are they working on, Um, kind of just opening, being a little bit more open with your peers and not being so guarded with things that could that could help them and and raise the game as a whole. Did you find in these conversations that there was a sense that that gender bias was was a factor in some way, shape or form here? Yes, that 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 came up in nearly all of my conversations just to some level. So Gender bias is really tricky, right? I think biases in, in general, uh, we, we all have them as humans. We have them in, in, in some capacity. Right. Um, and when it comes to gender biases, um, you know, it's kind of this, it's a really sensitive kind of subject. It's, it's sometimes hard to prove. Um, but, but I did hear a lot of times women were saying things like, well, you know, I, um, you know, the way that I coach my team, sometimes it might come off as aggressive or, um, you know, whereas if I'm yelling at a team, yelling at my team, uh, it might come off a little bit differently if, if my male counterpart is doing it. So just the, the, the perceptions that they have um, kind of around their, their gender and what they have sensed. And, and there are some, there, there's some good studies out there that have lended kind of legs to, to this issue as well. The Women's Sports Foundation recently did a study last year that um, you had all kinds of really powerful data um, about gender biases, too. So, so there are a number of these areas then that you were able to identify through these conversations, uh, factors that seem to be contributing at, at some level 
to this the, the shrinking number that we're seeing. I guess my next question is, well, then what's, what's being done about it? Is anything being done about it, either institutionally or organizationally or individually? What did you find? I think there is a lot being done. So, um, yeah, that, that's the very – it's positive to think about all of the, the efforts that are, that are going on around the association. Um, and I, I'll, I'll just highlight a couple of them. I'm sure I'm going to miss a, a few of the, the big ones. But um, the Gender Equity Task Force I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, they, they reconvened recently for the first time in, in, in 22 years. And so this group is very um, focused on, on this issue, on um, making sure that there are equitable opportunities for, for both genders in college sports. Um, recently, um, just just last year, we, there were, the NCAA issued a, a presidential pledge for uh, gender equity and racial and ethnic diversity. So all of the presidents and chancellors and conference commissioners around the association were invited to to sign this pledge. So of course that's just the first step. You can right. you can sign a pledge, mm-hmm. um, but then it's what's what's the but action? At least it that, shows that people are starting to pay attention. To right, it. right. So so that received um, great support. I think it's you know we've had um, vast majority of of the NCAA uh, leaders have have signed this pledge, and then they're working on their own colleges, um, college campuses, and and at their own conference offices to kind of bring some of these efforts to, to life. As you look at it, somebody who has taken a good hard look at it, sort of from above, and you've, you've talked to people about it, do you get the sense amongst the, the, the people on the ground, the women coaches out there, who've talked with you about why they think this number has so dramatically been so dramatically reduced, do you, do you get the sense that they're optimistic, or do you get a sense that they're thinking, you know what, this is sort of a downward spiral, and I don't know if we're going to stop this? What do you think? That's a good question. <laughs> I'm glad um, that you have to answer it and not me. It's so, <laughs> a nice part about asking the questions. I could toss it out there and let, let's see what Rachel yeah, has to I say. Yeah, I don't want to speak for them all. I did what, probably yeah. um, 30 different yeah. interviews um, through the year that I was working on that story. But I would say I think they recognize that there's been progress. Um, I, I think I can safely say that, but they, they definitely do um, feel heavily that there's, there's more work to be done. Well, it, it's a fascinating story, Rachel Stark. It was, it was wonderful reporting, wonderfully written, and again, surprised me, and I'm sure it surprises a lot of other people out there what those numbers are. Um, but it, it, it's good to hear that people are talking about it and, and have identified some of these factors and have said, what can we do about all of this and can we change something? Because I, I, I think, again, as the father of a daughter you know, who was a college athlete, the line you used a few minutes ago, you, know, you can't be what you don't see. I, I think is something that we need to keep in mind as a society and certainly within the world of college athletics. Rachel, thanks for joining us and for thanks sharing so much your for thoughts. Having me. We appreciate it. Uh, that does it for us for today for this edition of College Sports Insider. We hope you'll join us next time. I'm Jack Ford. Till then, take care. <laughs>